In the bonus room, Roger talks about food, being backstage with Pavarotti, and his response when, years ago in Italy, he was told by a disgruntled member of the audience that he was leaving after the intermission. So I expect to be in Japan next February and March. I'm going to be heartbroken if I can't go. Not only do I just need to travel and I need to sit down and be with students live, and I also need my fix of Japanese cuisine. That was going to be my next question. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know you're, favorite. you're famous for that. And, and you have said that your favorite cuisine is Japanese. And I'm surprised because I have no idea about Oaxaca, but I would assume the cuisine there is, is pretty great. But also Italy. Italy's known for its cuisine. Okay. But Jap- Japan has good Italian restaurants. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I've eaten in some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, yeah, sushi is great. Actually, I've heard of a restaurant in Tokyo. Maybe you know of this restaurant. Maybe you've actually eaten there. That's really famous and extremely exclusive. And it's evidently one piece of sushi costs $20. Have you heard of that restaurant? Not specifically, but I've been to a restaurant that matches that description. I don't think it's one piece. I mean, you can't buy one piece. You can't go in there and buy one piece because, first of all, you have to have a reservation in like a week or 10 days beforehand. Yeah, I think this is like three months before you need a reservation. Then you have, you know, you can order your assortment. You know, you can go, if you take two people in there, you can lose $1,000 easily, Mm -hmm. especially if you love it like I do. Yeah, right. And I haven't done that too many times, but I have done that. It's special when it happens. And it's worth it, man. It is worth it. One other question I wanted to ask you was, you used to, I think in the LA Philharmonic, you used to hang out backstage and watch great artists, I guess, before they would go on stage. Um, I've heard you talk about that, but I don't believe you talked about what you learned from them, what qualities you saw that they had. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I've I've uh, I've watched um, one thing you will enjoy, Pavarotti, for example. I was playing tuba with the Maggio Musicale, and I had uh, and we were playing Tosca, and Pavarotti was doing the part of the tenor. I forgot who the person's name was, and I I know I like to walk backstage and watch people, and he liked to talk to people. He liked to uh, put on his makeup, put on hair, and he would warm up. Or, you know, he would vocalize. I'm sorry, they vocalize. Right, right. (laughs) Two stories. I was with my daughter, Melody, and she was 11 at the time. And I said, can I introduce you to my daughter, Melody? And he was saying, oh, of course. Yes, very nice. I'd like to meet her. You know, even speaking with vibrato. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'd take him in. Ah, oh, what's your name? And I'm, I'm Melody. Oh, what a beautiful name. And he was just such a fine guy. And then uh, I left, and he was starting to vocalize. And you're going to get this joke better than most people. He was vocalizing, playing in, with piano with one hand. And he was going, Ah! So I was thrilled because that's right out of my book. 
Pavarotti was playing my warm-ups. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, I got it from Stamp. Right, right. Yeah, that sounds Stamp like this. Yeah. And, you know, Stamp got it from Mazur or, or Slossberg. Slossberg, I don't know, got it. And all the way back to maybe 200 years ago, where guys like Bordodny, who you know, mm -hmm. you're right. he was doing those kind of exercises for voice. And they were voice exercises that were adapted for brass and then next generation, next generation, next generation. Now it's right here. That's great. The tradition continues. I love the brag that Pavarotti plays my warm-ups. That's great. That's really great. He sounded pretty good, I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, but listening to these people backstage, did they did they seem like another category of a person? I mean, was their mentality different or did they just seem like normal people right before they'd go on stage? Or well, They were all different. Some were normal people. Some of them were like, you know, thoroughbred horses in the stalls, ready to go, you know? Sort of. Oh, right. Uh -huh. And uh, I was there with Horowitz. He would come out, you know, he was poised. He didn't know anything he didn't know about anything to his left or right. He was ready to go on. And they, he said, are you ready now? And, yeah. And he moved his cheeks like this, get them rosy, and went out on stage and played. And it changes. I mean, some guys are aloof and stay in the green room until the last minute. Some guys like to come out on the stage and kid around. Mm -hmm. And I've seen both. But there's a certain energy and uh, there's a certain respect that the people who are not going out to play a solo give them you know you you respect you know the, the conductor who loves to sit and talk to people and make jokes but still he's the conductor and you're trying to help him make jokes one thing we haven't discussed is you've been at the forefront of this movement of making the tuba recognized as a solo instrument. I mean, you were basically the start of this crusade, I guess you would call it. Um, starting, I think, when you were in, well, actually before when you were in Los Angeles, because you did a Carnegie Hall recital. But then in Los Angeles, you started doing tuba solo albums, um, which are, are sort of the standard these days still. Um, where do you see the tuba going in the future? Wow. I mean, if we look back and see where it's been in the last 50 years, not only tuba, but brass playing. You know, if I try to remember what a brass section sounded like 50 years ago, other than Chicago, 50 years ago, it already uh, was showing excellence. Yeah. And when I was in college at Eastman School of Music, a group of students, just a bunch of guys and whoever was there that night, we'd sit in a room at the dormitory and listen and try to figure out which orchestra was playing and we could do it. Yeah, I could too. Actually in LA, I used to do that on the freeway, you know, when I'd turn the radio on. Me too. Yeah. And I was, at, it, I'd say just judging by the Trump first trumpet player and the first yes. player, I was like 50, I could get at least 50% of the time. Right. Correct. Yeah. yeah, me too. And if I, you know, if it was out of tune and, and everybody sounded different. Maybe it was Italian. If it was out of tune and skinny, thin sound, maybe it was French. <laughs> if it was dry and boring, maybe it was British. If it was uh, lush and late, maybe it was German. And, 
you're getting yourself into a lot of trouble there. You realize that. I know. That. I know. Well, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. So, yeah. But today, they're all great. Yes, that's you know, for sure. All of those sections are as good as Chicago was 50 years ago, or even Chicago is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's not one greatest brass section in the world. You know, they all sound great. I, I mean, Berlin sounds great, and Chicago sounds great. L.A., I assume, sounds great. I don't hear it much. They do. I was listening just before we started talking today through the Lucerne Festival, playing Mahler 7. That's Gorgeous. a great orchestra. It's incredible. It's just a wonderful orchestra. The first trumpet player in that orchestra is great, too. Yeah, Reinhold Friedrich. So those sessions that we used to have where we could quickly guess or would be very difficult now because it's all excellence. So instead of guessing from the personnel that we may have known, it's like trying to guess the great soloist on the violin. If, you know, we can't discriminate, you and I, I don't think, a difference between a Guarneri and a Stradivarius. No, at least I can't. No, nor can I. So we have to learn the playing of the individual. And so maybe we can guess Isaac Perlman or Yasha Heifetz, but they all sound great. You know, there's 25 different kinds of greatness, or 60 or 100. And with brass sections, I think is the same thing. And I, I don't have the ears that I used to have to listen the difference between Lucerne and Chicago and New York in Los Angeles and Berlin. I, I can't. Can you? These days, I would say not. Um, I mean, there might be one orchestra where I could, the trumpet playing would stand out as being really different. But just thinking back to when I was a student, I mean, I'll, actually, the, if you would consider the five big orchestras, they were re- really easy for me to identify five big orchestras in, in America because each one of the trumpet players had a different sound and different vibrato. Yeah. They were very, and, and in a way you could say it's too bad that we've lost that individualism, but in a way the sections play better together now. Um, and uh, let's say you take one orchestra and they can play German music in a German style and French music in a French style where they couldn't do that before. So it's almost like a trade-off. It's too bad that maybe we've lost, you know, for example, when I was in, a student, for trumpet, Bernie Adelstein, the trumpet player, played basically no vibrato at all and sort of a very sharp, uh, distinct attack. Uh, William Vacchiano in New York had a really pronounced and slow vibrato, as an example, yeah, uh, of, of two contrasting styles. And so if, if you'd hear those on a record um, or like on the radio, it was very easy to pick out, at least for me, because I was very familiar with their styles. I miss that. but. You know, you've got to say it's more excellent now than it used oh, to be. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, and, and there are so many great players today. Yeah. And also more refined. If you, hear, if you hear players today play Baroque music, especially in Europe, there are a number of orchestras now that they'll play um, older music on authentic instruments or replicas of authentic instruments. So let's say like in the Tonhalle Orchestra in, in, in Switzerland, you know, if they do... Schumann, the horns, you play um, uh, natural horns and the, the trumpets play natural trumpets. 
so it's a really different uh, approach now. And, and I think things are just more sophisticated. You know, I mean, if you have an orchestra, like the tone hall, I don't know if they've ever done this, but you know, if they, for, for, for the first half, they'd play the spring symphony of, of Schumann on Baroque instruments. And then the rite of spring, the second half with modern instruments, you can really see the progress and that's really sophisticated playing. So I think, I think things today, you know, I mean, in a way are, you know, it has to be this way. Culture has to continually move forward and improve, you know, it makes you think, well, what are things going to be like 20 or 30 years down the road? You know, we're going to probably seem like we're pretty unsophisticated right now in the way we approach things. And and it has to be that way. You asked the question, what's the future of the tuba? Well, I don't know because you know, there were very few virtuoso tuba players 60 years ago when I played the Carnegie Hall recital. And now there's, they're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, great. Way beyond my wildest dreams. Great. Mm -hmm. Where's it going to go? That's a big question. What's the necessity, what's the necessity of it evolving further? These guys can do more than uh, I was able to imagine. And that was one of the people who was ahead then. So we're going to see. I don't know if electronics are going to come into play. I mean, on all of these uh, website events that I was talking about earlier that are becoming more and more and more sophisticated, sometimes more charming, more beautiful. Where's that going to go? And I see electronics starting to pop in here and there. Well, it will be interesting, that's for sure. I mean, the same, I could ask the same questions in composition. Where's that going to go? I mean, you know me, I went through a period of avant-garde for about 15 years where I only did avant-garde music. And I stopped because I needed to play an espressivo. I needed to play the Schubert Serenade and the Bach air for the G-string. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, now people are writing great. You are writing wonderful brass pieces. Well, thank you. It's just extraordinary. And lots of them too. But where's composition going to go? Yeah, I can't answer that because it's, I think we're in a really interesting time right now because um, music has always, in a way, progressed. And by progress, progression, I mean gotten, I guess you could say, more complex. Um, and maybe that reached its apex perhaps in the late 60s, early 70s, where music was really modern and avant-garde. And now you have people who are writing extremely avant-garde, but you also have people who are writing fairly conservative music, who are also considered to be top composers. And so I don't know how that's going to sort itself out, if it's going to go one way or another, or... If to me, it's not important if you're uh, avant-garde or if you're rather conservative. To me, what's important is how great is the music? Because you take Stravinsky, who was very avant-garde for his time, and the reason why he still played is because he's great. Bach was considered to be very conservative in his time. He wrote out, he was criticized for writing out his ornaments, um, you know, and he he developed the fugue and people thought the fugue was basically dead, you know, so... Uh, so he was considered to be very conservative. So it doesn't matter, you know, as long as the music is really great. And some of the times it takes a long time to figure out if, if, if a piece is great or not. You know, it needs, it needs time, like a great book, for example. Yes. 
And I hope I'm around for a long time because I'm so curious to see what the crest of the wave is going to be like. Yeah, yeah. There may not be a crest. It may just keep building someplace. <laughs> so. have a tsunami that's going to wash around the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I, I remember, maybe we can close with this. I'm sure you do not remember this, but it's, I thought it was so funny at the time. And it, to me, it points to your optimism. Uh, we did a course in Riva del Garda and there was a, we, we had to go up to, I remember this. I don't even know the story yet, but it's going to be fun. I already know that. <laughs> yeah, Riva yeah. del Garda. Yeah. And, and we had to do this concert with, with the, with the students, a brass group from the students. I remember a horrific bus drive I up to know. this castle in the mountains. I remember that. Oh yeah. my God. And it was the, the bus ride was blowing. really scary. And, yes. and, and so the concert, <laughs> the, let's just say the group was not Chicago Symphony level. Yeah. Maybe not so great. And, and the um, music was flying all over the place. Yeah, right. And so, and so, I mean, yeah, exactly. So I conducted a little bit and you conducted a little bit, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah. Thanks for bringing that memory back. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, the, so the first half, after, after the first half, during the intermission, there was somebody from the audience who, who I could tell he was walking up to me and I could I tell remember, him, I know. he was not happy. And he said, the first thing he said to me was prima vista, meaning, are you sight yeah. reading? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I said, no. And he said, it's not good. And I said, well, okay. And he said, I'm leaving. And, and so for me, I thought, okay, well, you know, sorry, have a nice life. Well, I and was there. He, I heard that moment. Well, wait, yeah. And then, well, then he went directly to you and he said, <laughs> this, this was so great. He said, Prima Vista, exactly the same thing. And, and you said, no. And he said, I'm leaving. And you said, wait, stay for the second half. It's going to be better. <laughs> But he didn't. But to me, that, that, that's optimism. As I recall, it wasn't better. No, it wasn't. Oh. <laughs> but you were very optimistic about it. What a beautiful place. Oh, that was gorgeous. Incredible. Really it was a magic old castle. Yeah. Great, great times. Well, Roger, it's been so great talking to you again. It's been quite a while, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. It's been great. For me, too. Uh, that story, just the story of the old castle, is enough to excite me.